This is the Memory Palace of Nate Mayo. The French had nailed it. The world loved a World's Fair, and the Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1889 just killed. The exhibits in the grounds were unparalleled and impeccable. And at the center of it all was this audacious steel structure that managed to be imposing and elegant and the tallest thing on earth and unmistakably French all at once. Paris had the Eiffel Tower, and the men planning the next fair, the Columbian Exposition in Chicago just a few years away, needed something that good, something Eiffel Tower good. And that wasn't easy to find. The proposals ran from the ridiculous, like a structure that would rise almost 2,000 feet above the land of Lincoln made entirely of stacked logs on top of the replica of Abe's boyhood home, to the extra ridiculous, something so tall that visitors would take an elevator to the top and then sit in the slide that would drop them off right here in San Francisco. The fair's organizers were in a panic. They demanded that America's designers and engineers step up, and a man named George Ferris stepped forward. When his Ferris wheel was completed that summer, it rose 264 feet above the ground, which was a lot shorter than the Eiffel Tower. But that thing didn't even move. And the idea that something that was so massive but appeared so fragile, like a bicycle wheel whose spokes looked too thin to keep the bike up, was thrilling and kind of terrifying. Despite what the engineers said, despite the math and laws of physics, despite the assurances given by people running the fair, there are people who were sure that this ludicrous machine was going to be a disaster, that people are going to die, that not only was this flimsy thing not going to be able to stand up to a prairie wind or a gale off the lake, even if it did, the prospect of tumbling through the air 20 stories above Chicago is craziness. Who in their right mind was going to want to ride that thing? And hundreds of thousands of people did. Despite the fact that during this test run, hundreds of bolts and loose parts rained down on spectators below. Despite true stories of panic riders trying to escape through the windows when they realized exactly how high 200 feet was. Despite apocryphal stories of suicides in severed limbs. This Ferris wheel, this thing that's basically a kiddie ride today, was a bigger thrill ride than any quintuple loop reverse twist open car rocket coaster. It might have its six flags. But moreover, it was an entirely new human experience. The newspapers, even some in France, said it was the marvel of the age, better than the Eiffel Tower. And it was a Ferris wheel. That almost mundane sensation we have now of looking down from above and moving through space, up and down and around again. No one had ever felt that way before. Of course, now we can't really feel it anymore. We've gone around too many times. We've looped too many loops. But back in 1893, you could pay your 50 cents and climb into a car right after sunset during the golden hour and experience something entirely new. You could rise up far above the World's Fair, where down below, Americans were eating hamburgers for the first time where entire villages from Egypt and Algeria had been reconstructed in the American Middle West. And you could come back down and step out of the car and be among the first people on Earth to ever walk around at night with lights on. But fairs end. They shut down. They pack up. They leave town. And the Ferris wheel left too. 
and moved to a different park on the north side of the city. It was fun for a while, but then the novelty was gone and they tore it down. And a salvage company bought it for eight grand and blew it up with dynamite and sold the pieces for scrap. There were mornings after nor'easters or summer squalls when people would wake to find hundreds who'd washed ashore in the night. Hundreds of writhing, pinching lobsters, stranded by the storm tide, scratching and sand coating and starting to smell. And the people would trudge out in the half light down to a gunquit or situist or horseneck beach and wade into the undulating mass of clambering crustaceans, piled sometimes two feet high deep enough so that these 14 and 17 and 29 pound lobsters were clawing at these people's knees and thighs as they tried to shovel them back into the sea before they rotted and the flies and the seagulls went to town there on the beach. And if they had the stomachs for it, they'd take one home for dinner. Whoa. For the first couple of hundred years that white Europeans uh, lived in North America, the lobster, the surf to filet mignon's turf, was peasant food. They were so plentiful that there was always one to eat if you couldn't afford anything better. They would just wash up by the wharfs in Boston. You could just wait till the tide went out and grab a 20-pounder that got trapped in the tide pools. But you couldn't serve it at a restaurant because they, they were served in prisons. At Plymouth, Governor Bradford wrote of his shame when after the famously cruel winter, a new batch of pilgrims arrived and all he had to serve them was lobster. As as though it was something that may or may not have once been a squirrel he found in the interstate. And there were too many of them for and there were too many of them for anyone to want them. And scarcity creates value, and no one can make any money selling something that you just have to go out and get for yourself. But then people figured out ways to get them to places where people just couldn't go out and get them for themselves. And things changed for the lobster, thanks to two innovations. In 1810, a British merchant patented a tin can. A couple of decades later, people in Maine put the new invention to use. They hauled up lobsters by the hundreds of thousands and then shipped them, a pound at a time, in cans to the lobsterless corners of the world. Not that any of it tasted any good. Salted, blackened Maine lobster was little more than straight protein to fuel miners in the Sierra Nevada, or loggers in Cameroon. But by 1870, people sent live lobsters, lobsters that actually tasted good, inland, on trains. And soon lobster palaces, grand restaurants devoted to the strange new arrivals from New England, rose in Chicago and St. Louis. And the schmanciest Midwesterners, kings of the cattle yards who'd grown tired of steak, furriers who tasted the future and found that it was shelled, would show their stations by eating crustaceans. And food that had found its way to the shores of Lake Michigan from the shores of New England couldn't be peasant food, not at those prices. And the lobster, as we know it on modern menus, was born. But the lobster as they knew it, and as seaside peoples had known it for millennia, was on its way out. In 1885, the American lobster industry hauled 130 million pounds of them up from the ocean. In 1819, the weigh-in was 30 million pounds. The population had collapsed under the weight of a 30-year binge of bibs and melted butter. Now, this isn't an extinction story, per se. This isn't the story of the last passenger pigeon in North America or the last tree on Easter Island. Because there are lots of lobsters, plenty of them. But they aren't the lobsters they used to be. 
The biggest canning company in the 1880s had a policy that the smallest lobster they could use was six pounds. That's six pounds. Smaller than two wasn't considered fit for human consumption. The maitre d' at the Harris' Steakhouse over on Van Ness tells me that the biggest lobster in their tank right now is two and a half pounds in $64. It takes up to seven years for a lobster to grow to be one pound. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a lobster named Goliath in a tank at a sports bar in Taunton, Massachusetts. He weighed 20 pounds. And during halftime of the 2008 Super Bowl, while watching the Patriots lose to the New York Giants, a 35-year-old woman from Medway won Goliath in a raffle. And she didn't eat him. She wrapped him in towels soaked in cold salt water and drove an hour up Route 24 to Boston and handed him over to the New England Aquarium. Two weeks later, he was on a flight to Montreal. An aquarium there wanted a monster lobster of its own. So rare is a 20-pound lobster that heaven and earth, or at least the resources of two aquariums, one airplane, and various customs officials, were moved to ensure the safe relocation of the type of crustacean, this side of which, for most of human history, wouldn't have moved an eyebrow. Biologists at the aquarium say he's adjusted well to life in the tank, the tank where, theoretically, he could live for decades and decades longer, safe from nets and traps. Theoretically, because no one knows how long a lobster can live, and no one knows how big they can grow. We just know they don't get the chance to anymore. Samuel Finley Brees Morse spent the first 35 years of his life learning to paint at Andover, at Yale, in London at the Royal Academy. He studied the works of the masters to learn how Michelangelo built bodies that seemed to pulse and shudder out of mere oil and shadow and crosshatch. To learn how Raphael summoned the spark of inner life with a single stroke of pure white in the dusky ochre of a noblewoman's eye to learn how to create illusions of space and distance, to learn how to conjure the ineffable through the mere aggregation of lines and dots on stretched canvas. He learned how to paint. In 1825, Morris was living in New Haven, Connecticut with his wife, Lucretia, and two young sons. And there was a third child on the way, due any day now, when a courier delivered a message. The city of New York wanted to pay Morris $1,000 to paint a portrait of the Marquis de Lafayette. The hero of the revolution was coming to Washington to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the start of the war. And he would sit for Morse if the painter could leave right away. So he packed up his easel and his brushes and his paints and clothes good enough to wear, uh, to wear when meeting a man of the age. And he kissed his pregnant wife and he left that night. On another night, a week later, Morse was in his rented studio in Washington, preparing it for the arrival the next morning of his distinguished subject and he heard a knock on the door. Another courier, breathless and dirty from a hard ride on hard road, handed him a note, and it was five, five words long. Your dear wife is convalescent. He left that night. He rode for six days straight, 
on horsebacks and horseback and in the backs of juddering wagons, wrapped in blankets against the cold of October nights. And when he made it to New Haven and ran through the fallen leaves to the house on Whitney Avenue, he learned that his wife was dead. In fact, she had died before the courier had knocked on his door. In fact, she had already been buried some morning while he was on the road, while he was racing home to be by her side and sit with her while she got better. Samuel Finley Brees Morris spent the next 45 years of his life trying to make sure no one would ever have to feel the way he felt that night, ever again. Samuel Finley Brees Morris spent the next 45 years inventing the telegraph to turn real space and real distance into illusion and developing Morse code, dots and lines that could tr transmit the stuff of real lives and of dying wives. Thanks very much.